we jump into a new series this morning, um, one that I am particularly excited about. Um, we're going to be looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation um, is not uh, everyone's favorite book. Um, I've never heard anyone say to me, hey man, I'm doing a really cool devotional in the book of Revelation. I've, I've yet to hear that. Um, in fact, I know some of you probably go, I've probably never heard a sermon from the book of Revelation. It's just one of those books that's like, man, there's, there's a lot happening there and I'm not 100% sure how to navigate through it. But, but the thing is that it is the very word of God. And so because it is the word of God, we must we must make our way through it. We must uncover the gems that are found in this book that put on display who God is so that we might understand who we are in him. And so we're going to be walking through the seven churches. It's only the first three chapters of this book, but there's so much richness and goodness in there. That yes, it was written for a people in that time to those specific churches, but we'll see in a moment and we'll see for the next couple of weeks that we can take hold of what was said to them for us. That it applies to us. That it's necessary for us to understand and to grapple with. So let me start by saying this. One of the major themes in the book of Revelation is victory. You're going to see that over and over again. It's, it's victory, Jesus' victory over sin and death and the implications of that victory. The implications of that victory. In fact, the, the two phrases that we're going to see over and over again that communicate this victory is to overcome and to conquer. To overcome and to conquer. Jesus has overcome sin and death. He has conquered evil and depravity. As we study the seven churches, these phrases will appear at the end of each address made to that church to overcome and to conquer. We will see that Jesus wants his church to live out of that reality. Or maybe a better way to say it is he wants us to operate from the position of victory. Not ours, because we could not attain it on our own. It's the victory that he obtained on the cross. That, that is what we operate from, from a position of victory. Now, wh why is this important? I'm glad you asked. It's because we live in a broken world. You don't have to go too far to realize that. We live in a broken world, that this side of heaven we are being tempted, that this side of heaven we walk through pain and suffering, that this side we feel the heat of the fiery furnace called life. But for those who are in Christ, this will not destroy you because of the victory that is found in Jesus. And so we can echo with Paul when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is why we never give up. When life throws everything at us, this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. How? How, Oné? How, how do we have such security? Well, I, I said it earlier, but let me say it again. For those in Christ. 
for those in Christ, that security is found in Jesus Christ. It's by surrendering your life to him as Lord and Savior, and all of it. Not some. We don't go to Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus, you, you can have my calendar, but you can't have my budget. Jesus, you can have my ambitions, but you can't have my relationships. It's by surrendering all of your life to him as Lord and Savior. It is in Christ that we overcome particular trials and temptations. So what kinds of trials and temptations were these churches facing? What were they up against? Uh, We will look at them in detail in the next coming weeks, but for now, let me quickly summarize. Uh, They were facing the trial of persecution and the temptation of the world. And all of this was leading them to compromise the gospel. Sounds familiar? We could put it in more basic language. Uh, Jesus tells these churches, don't give up in the face of persecution. Don't give in to the pressures of this world. Uh, Dr. Tony Marita says this, this message to the churches is a microcosm of the entire book. He's saying that if you, if you get the first three chapters of this book, then you'll understand the rest of Revelation. He goes on to say that if they remain faithful, each church is promised eternal blessing. If they remain faithful. So let's take a look. Revelation chapter 1, from verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the world, to testify to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, the, the first thing we need to look at is what type of book is Revelation? What type of book is Revelation? Number one, it's apocalyptic. Please don't think of your favorite zombie movies. That's not what apocalyptic means. There are a series of visions that uncover hidden truths about God's sovereign control of the future, and he will bring it to an end in Christ. Uh, For example, it's like a a marketing campaign. I'm sure you've seen uh, something like this, where you're only given a glimpse You're not given the full picture. You're just given a glimpse of what they're trying to put before you. Some might say that that's what the the Bible is like, but the book of Revelation is when you're given the whole thing. It's like, there we go. Here's what it's all about. Here's what I'm trying to put before you. See, in the book of Revelation, we see God's rule, God's rescue, and God's sovereign triumph through Jesus. We see it all. So it's apocalyptic. It's also prophetic. Or you may say it's prophetic apocalyptic. It doesn't just have a word about the future through symbolic language, but it calls the people of God to be accountable 
in light of what it says. It calls us to be accountable. It's prophetic. And so there is a warning and there is comfort. Much like the prophets when we read them in the Old Testament. There is warning and then there is comfort. Revelation, as we will see, has many references to the prophets. That this book is drenched in the Old Testament. It really is. And so it is apocalyptic, it is prophetic, but it is also a letter. It is a letter. We see this in verse 4. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you. It sounds like all the other letters in their introduction. Here's who wrote it. Here's who it's for, grace and peace. So it is a letter. And the original hearers of this letter are addressed with the final events of history and what is to happen next. Uh, Not so that they can create weird charts and come up with weird cults. That's not the purpose here. But rather, it's so that they might be inspired to be faithful to the end. See, this inspiration, this encouragement was not just intended for the original hearers. But this message is for all the churches across the ages. And so here's some important information as we navigate through this series. As we look at the seven churches, here's some important information. Number one is that this revelation that John received is not his own, but it comes from God. They didn't come up with this stuff on his own. That it is from God. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. The the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave. That God gave. That this is from God. This is important. It's that thing that we've got to constantly remind ourselves of as we go back to this book. The second thing that I think is important to recognize is the method of communication. It's been communicated to us here that it's, it's from God to Christ, to the angel, to John, to us. From God, to Christ, to the angel, to John, to us. And then lastly, Revelation has a series of pictures and symbols. It has a series of pictures and symbols. Now we don't look at it like clips in a movie that kind of go chronologically but rather think of it as we navigate through the book of Revelation like you're in an art gallery and you're looking at paintings and that all these paintings tell one story, but they aren't necessarily walking chronologically through the story. We'll often see things being repeated. They're stated in a different way, but they're being repeated through different symbols. That There is a lot of repetition. And so again, I just want to give you guys this so that you understand the kind of book that we're going to be navigating through these next couple of weeks. The cool thing that I love here is right out the gates we see a blessing. Right out the gates, there is a blessing for God's people. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it. Blessed can be interpreted in its simplest form as, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy. Oh, how joyous 
are those who hear these words and keep it. What the writer is trying to communicate here is that if you avoid this book, then you rob yourself of joy. If you avoid this book, you rob yourself of joy. And so the more you read it, the more you keep it, the more you do it, the more you will discover God's plan and realize that he wins and Satan loses. This is important for us. This idea of keeping the word. It's important for us. This is how we ended the series on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, hey, blessed is the one, right, who keeps this, who hears this and puts it into action. Here, here it is again. That we're called to keep this word. It's the keeping the word. That phrase is found about 10 times in this book. It's another way to express the theme of perseverance, of being faithful to the end. Why remain faithful? Because the time is near. Because the time is near. The nearness of the Lord's return is used throughout the New Testament to call believers to be faithful. Be faithful. The fact that He is coming should impact all of our life. Every aspect of our life, our purity, our marriages, our singleness, our patience, our self-control, our prayer life, it should impact everything. The time is near. And so be faithful. See, the study of the end times should not make us fanatics. It should make us faithful. And somehow we've twisted it especially in the church. We've now become these fanatics with end chart, charts, end time charts and, and all these theories when we don't realize that it's actually calling us to be faithful. Faithful to God and His Word. And so that was a, a quick introduction to the book of Revelation. And we're planning on sending something out this week, something a little bit more in-depth that you'll kind of get your feet wet for what is coming ahead. But that was just a quick introduction. Just to give us some handles as we navigate through our series on the seven churches. And so having said that, let's jump in. The seven churches. We see that it begins with a greeting. A greeting to the churches. In verse 4, this greeting comes from John. This is the Apostle John. The same John who wrote the gospel according to John. And the other three letters titled John. He, he was one of the 12 disciples. In fact, he was one of the three that made it into the inner circle, Jesus' inner circle. But at this point, he's an old man. He's probably one of the last living apostles. And he's now found himself exiled to this island called Patmos. We're told it's because of his faith in Jesus. He's now been exiled and left there to die. So John is the author. But we see that this letter is addressed to the seven churches. Now, these were seven historical churches. They were real, legitimate churches. They were located in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They were located on a major postal route. 
and are addressed in order of their location, starting with Ephesus and then moving clockwise. And, and so it was like this, this individual was given this letter and literally would go from one church to the next church to hand over this letter so that it might be read in the congregational gathering much like this. Now, while these are historical churches, there is great wisdom and application for churches today and throughout history. And so all churches must pay attention to what the Spirit says to the churches. You're going to see that phrase over and over and over again. We're called to pay attention. What you'll also see, and you should recognize, is the number seven. See, the number seven is an important number in Revelation. It indicates completion. It indicates completion. And so as we navigate through the seven churches, we will see a common outline for each church. A common outline for each church. We're going to see an authoritative introduction. Usually a mention of the church or a command, words that are coming from Christ or that speak of Christ, an authoritative introduction. Then we'll see an all-knowing evaluation, a commendation or a criticism. Then we'll see an appropriate call to either persevere or to repent. And then we will see an amazing conclusion, a blessing or a reward, right? So that's what you're going to see as you navigate through each church, an authoritative introduction, an all-knowing evaluation, and an appropriate call, and then an amazing conclusion. But let's read John's introduction together. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priests. I love that. That we are a royal priesthood. You can connect this to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. This is a connection to Matthew 24, verse 30. I wish I had time to unpack this, but I don't. We'll get to it in the coming weeks. So it is to be. Amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What he's saying, he said, I'm the beginning and the end. I am everything, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Then John proceeds to give us a description of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So he intros who God is, and then he gives us a description of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, the one who is over the church. Now, some of you might be interested by this, and so I'll give it to you. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, make no real effort to describe Jesus' physical appearance. Nothing of his weight, his height, his hairstyle, eye color, nothing. What we do know is that he was fully human, fully God, and fully man. We know that he was a Jewish man who grew up in a Jewish culture. 
But that's all that we really get about his physical appearance. But here, we have an inspired portrait of the resurrected Lord of the church. And it's an apocalyptic description. Oh no, why, why do you say that it's apocalyptic? I'm glad you asked. Great questions this morning. Here's why. You'll notice the essential interpretive word, like. It's rooted fellowship, guys. We don't just give great theology, but great grammar as well. The interpretive word, like, which is something that we will see throughout the book of Revelation about 56 times in the book. Like. It's the use of symbols. And so you will miss John's meaning if you don't think symbolically. The same can be said about the way Solomon describes his bride in the book Song of Songs. I mean, I doubt that his bride's nose was a defense tower. I I, I highly doubt it. I I doubt that her hair was a flock of goats. I I just don't think that's the case. Symbolic. And so John is revealing the glory of the Lord of the church with symbolic imagery. Every feature reveals something about Christ's majestic being. And this is what the seven churches needed. They needed a vision of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what we need. As we navigate through pain and suffering, as we navigate through this chaotic, broken world, we need a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's read together verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, Kingdom and endurance. I love that. I love the fact that he says, listen, you and I, man, we're, we're in this together. Y- yes, I'm an apostle, but we're in this together. In the affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. This is the Christian day of worship. Most likely the day that Christ resurrected. And I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. Simply put, it was loud and clear. Saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The strange thing here is that Jesus knew what Jesus I mean, John knew what Jesus looked like, right? Think about it for a moment. Uh, John was with Jesus for three years. He even saw him after the resurrection. But here, this portrait that we're given, this is, this is, this is something else. This is the second coming Jesus in all his glory. And so, friends, I want us to listen properly. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. We'll get to those in a moment. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Son of Man, a a figure of glory looking back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. And though the title Son of Man sounds like a humble title, in light of the Daniel passage, it is not humble at all. It is powerful 
full of glory. And so I encourage you to go read Daniel 7. John goes on, he says, he was dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The clothing of Jesus indicates that he is a person of great dignity and authority. Long garments were only worn by those of great status. The golden sash wrapped around the chest hints at the garments of the high priest seen in Exodus chapter 29 verse 5. One of the duties of the Old Testament priests, listen, was to tend to the golden lampstands in the tabernacle. Every day they had to fill the oil, clean the dust or ashes, and trim the wicks. They had to closely inspect and care for the lamps so they could burn continually before the Lord. Friends, if you got what I was saying, I wouldn't have to preach as long. Here, here we find Jesus, our high priest, in the midst of the seven lampstands, carefully inspecting and caring for the lamps, helping them to always burn brightly before the Lord. But John continues, the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow. The white hair speaks of old age. And in that culture, and much like many today, this communicates wisdom and endlessness. The phrase white as snow emphasizes the idea of purity. And his eyes were like a fiery flame. See, fire in the scriptures is often associated with judgment. Jesus' eyes displayed the fire of penetrating judgment. Nothing is hidden from his sight. All will be judged. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace. This speaks of his victory, of crushing his opponents. Bronze, heavy and strong as it is fired in a furnace. The the New Living Translation says it this way, that is polished bronze refined in a furnace. They burn everything in their path. Everything. The Lord, the coming Lord, possesses unstoppable power. And his voice was like the sound of cascading waters. This means that Jesus' voice had the power and majesty of a mighty waterfall. I don't know if you've ever uh, had the opportunity to go to the Victoria Falls or or any, any strong water feature. It's deafening. You stand there and it's, it's, it's deafening. There's a, a strong sense of reverence. That you're in awe and so you want to come close and see all this beauty. But at the same time, you're like, I, I, need, to, I need to stand back. That's reverence. And so his voice is like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. These seven stars are the representatives of the seven churches. How do you know that, Onet? Can you show us some scripture? No problem. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There we go. If you were wondering, there it is. That's why I love the word of God. It just interprets itself. And seeing as seven is the number of completion, we can say that he's got the whole church in his hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his 
mouth. This points to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Charles Spurgeon says this, there is no handling this weapon without cutting yourself. For it has no back to it. It is all edge. The word of Christ, somehow or other, is all edge. Friends, this is why we preach the word of God. My words, my creativity will never cut like the word of God. Will never expose like the word of God. And his face was shining like the sun at full strength. The glory of Jesus is so great, so shining, that it is hard to even look upon it. This is the portrait that we are given. This is the second coming Jesus that John sees. So what is John's response to all of this? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. John was overwhelmed by this awesome vision. Even though he was an apostle who knew Jesus, had spent three years with him, all of that did not really prepare him to see Jesus in his heavenly glory. And so he fell at his feet like a dead man. Then Jesus, he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Not because I am not terrifying. Let's not, let's not be fooled here. This is incredibly terrifying. But, but here's why Jesus says, don't be afraid. Because I am the first and the last. Now, this is a declaration from Jesus that he is what God is. Before all things and after all things. That he identifies himself with the Father. He said it himself, if you see me, you see the Father. I am the first and the, the last. But the fact that Jesus is the first and last isn't the only reason John shouldn't fear. Jesus goes on to say, and I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Death has no hold on him. Death has no hold on him. This is pointing to his death and resurrection, where he defeated sin and death. And so do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Someone needs to hear that this morning. Now, scratch that. All of us need to hear that this morning. Do not be afraid because you have received mercy. You have been forgiven. The judgment that comes with Jesus' second coming, if you are in Christ, is not for you. The death of Jesus saves all who trust in him. And so if you do not know God, which is to say that you have not put your trust in him, then let me assure you of his trustworthiness. And let me urge you to trust in him right now. Let me urge you to put your faith in him right now. Because for, for, for those who are in Christ, the story doesn't end with your lost breath. Because he has defeated death and sin, your story continues. And so you should be able to navigate through the challenges of this world. Put your faith in him.
I say it now, but we'll continue to say it as we walk through the seven churches. Because it's going to come up over and over and over again. Put your faith in him. Trust in him. Do not be afraid. And all of us, all of us are fearful of something. You know what keeps you up at night. What causes you to toss and turn. What causes you to constantly go and check your bank account. What, what constantly has you wondering, how's the economy doing? How's the, the politics and, and the, like, what is going on? You know what holds you and keeps you anxious and worried. But for those who are in Christ, we're told to not be afraid. Verse 19, therefore write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. And so this is what we will do over the next seven weeks. We will look at all that John saw, all that was, all that will take place, as we walk through the seven churches, my hope is that we would see much of Jesus. That's my hope, is that we would see much of Jesus. That we would be able to self-evaluate, not only as individuals, but as a community, as a church. And that we would trust Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we may be counted as those who were faithful until the end, regardless of the challenges and persecution that we face in this life, and that we'd be able to do this to the glory of God, for the furthering of his kingdom, and for our ultimate joy. And so that's what the seven churches is all about. It's pointing us back to Jesus, reminding us of who he is, and for those in Christ, reminding us of who we are and what awaits us. And so let me close as the band comes up with the words of Corey Ten Boom. Friends, if you don't know this phenomenal, incredible woman, you should. I'd encourage you to go Google her, Corey Ten Boom. And if you haven't read her book, The Hiding Place, you should. But my hope as we walk through the seven churches and as we walk through this side of heaven that we would be able to echo with Corey Ten Boom and say this. You can put it up. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. We know who he is. He's revealed himself over and over and over again. And so where I don't know what lies ahead tomorrow, I know, I know what lies ahead for eternity. That is our hope. Let's pray. And so Father, we come to you asking that as you, as you open up your word to us, as we make our way through the book of Revelation, as we look at the seven churches, that God, you would take a hold of our hearts, that you would expose the darkness in our lives, that you would reveal to us those things that are keeping us from you, from knowing you, from enjoying you, that we would be drawn to you yet again, and so I pray for all of those who've crossed the line of faith. 
God, you know what they're experiencing. I ask that you would meet them where they are. Whether the challenges in their marriage, whether it's at work, whether it's family with kids, whether it's with identity, Holy Spirit, meet them where they are and give them this beautiful portrait that John writes about. That all of this is meant to encourage us. For those in Christ, it's meant to encourage us, to inspire us so that we might persevere to the end, so that we might hold on so that we might look at what lies in front of us as temporary, momentary afflictions. And then God, I pray for those who aren't in Christ. Maybe they're on the fence. Maybe they're wondering. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them and that you would expose whatever it is that they are pursuing, whatever they are running hard after, hoping to find life and meaning in. Would you show that all of those things are false gods, that they will always come up empty. I pray that they would surrender to you, that they would lay it all down and then, so that they might receive mercy. It's your mercy, God, that allows us to stand before the Father. It's because of your mercy that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. All of this is because of the mercy that we have received from you. And so help us, Lord, to posture ourselves so that we might continue to receive more. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.